9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm here in New York City. We are joined by a remarkable group across the country today, beginning with a special guest, Representative Anthony Brown of Maryland, who is uh, a member of Congress, vice chairman of the uh, Armed Services Committee, member of the Ethics Committee, member of Committee on Infrastructure, uh, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, formerly a uh, long-distinguished military career. Uh, thank you for joining us, Congressman. David, it's great to be on with you and, and the other guests. Um, we had a little bit of time to kind of catch up, figure out where everybody is dispersed around the country, and uh, everyone's staying safe and socially distant. It's great to join you virtually. Thank you. Well, it's great to join you. The, the, the others who are joining us from various points around the country, starting on the East Coast, we have Ed Luce in Washington, D.C. Hi, Ed. Good to be with you, David. Good to have you back. And we have sort of not quite halfway across the country, a little more than that. We have Rosa Brooks um, in Wyoming or something like that. Is that right, Rosa? Montana right now, David. Yeah. Okay. Well, as a New Yorker, I don't really know the difference between Montana and Wyoming, but... (laughs) I assume there is some difference. Montana is more expensive. Oh, good. Well, that explains why you're there. And, of course, in lovely, sunny California, we have Corey Shockey. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. Um, well, it's great to have all of you here. And as we do when we have a special guest, what we will do is we'll do a round of questions from each of you to uh, uh Congressman Brown, and then uh, we'll have an open discussion and let me kick off with you, Corey. Okay. So, um, Representative Brown, I so admire the way you are trying to push forward diversity initiatives in the military. The one that's getting lots of attention is renaming of Confederate bases, which it shocks me has taken this long. And I'd love to know what else that you are working on and paying attention to should shock me that we haven't fixed in our military to expand our diversity. Sure. And uh, you're, you're right, Corey. I mean, the one that's getting the most attention uh, is renaming military installations, uh, primarily Army installations. There are, there are 10. Uh, they're named after uh, Confederate soldiers. I've been to a lot of them training and mobilizing Fort Benning, Fort Rucker, uh, Fort Hood, Fort Bragg. And I think it's important that we do that uh, for so many reasons. There is a, a symbolic uh, value to it, uh, but I think it's just a, a much um, pro- more profound statement uh, about where we are as a country, where the military is as an installation, and recognizing uh, that uh, we are a diverse um, organization. We need to be inclusive uh, and naming installations and, and buildings and roads after people who stood for division, who stood to defend slavery, 
uh, certainly doesn't move us in the right direction. So that's important. It's getting a lot of attention. But there are a lot of other things that we're working on. And this year in the Defense Authorization Act, um, at least on the House side, we advance the ball. It'll go to the Senate. Let me share with you some of those. Um, you know, I, I take great pride in my service uh, in the Army, active and reserve duty. Um, I think about 1948 when Truman ordered the uh, racial integration uh, of the armed forces. Uh, and in many ways, we were a model institution for the country. Uh, but we sort of slipped behind. Uh, for example, you know, the 61 um, four-star admirals and generals in the armed forces. Only two are African-American, only one woman. We can do better than that. So we've established uh, a mentor program uh, that will seek to diversify and, and be, uh, more, make more inclusive career fields, particularly those that lead to higher rates of promotion. Uh, we're also going to diversify the selection boards, so boards that select um, um, service members for promotion and command assignments in schools, um, because all that is important when you're considering the potential of an officer and whether they're going to be promoted to the next rank. Um, but we're also um, changing the organization. We're creating a chief diversity officer for the DOD, for each of the service components, and most importantly, ensuring that they are a direct report to the secretary. So the secretary takes even greater responsibility to diversify and make more inclusive the services. And we're going to require the secretary to report on diversity in a formal way, a comprehensive way, um, every uh, four years when he or she uh, transmits the national defense strategy uh, to Congress. So those are some of the things we're doing. We're also addressing uh, the disparate treatment, racial disparities um, among service members when it comes to the treatment under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. If you are a young That's black, great. yeah, if you're a young black specialist in the Army, you're two times more likely to be court-martialed for similar conduct than a white soldier. We think we're better than that. Uh, so we're going to address uh, that and, and a whole host of other things, but that's some of the highlights. Can I just, David, before you move on to Rosa and Ed, I learned something interesting over the weekend uh, in a discussion uh, with folks in the Army who are working on their diversity initiatives. And they, as part of the experimentation, um, they had... Um, in the discussion about eliminating um, uniform pictures as part of product as part of promotion packets, they said that they had done an internal experiment in which the candidates for battalion command were behind screens, so you couldn't physically see them, you could hear them, and the selectors were asked to uh, identify their gender and their race. And 50% of the time, they had the race wrong. And that strikes me as a really useful way to show, um, to take small measures to eliminate the bias in the system. Because you do see both advantageously by members of similar uh, racial groups and more importantly, disadvantageously if people are seeing the race of the person in front of them. And even if it's only a minor marginal difference that it makes, over the course of a career, that adds up in really negative ways. 
Secretary Esper has uh, stated that he's going to ban uh, photographs from uh, selection boards. Uh, we, we seek to codify that in the NDAA. And as you mentioned, there have been surveys that also show that when you give a selection board um, a set of um, candidates to consider, the paper, uh, their photo, uh, and other uh, things about them, um, uh, when you take away identifying information about race and gender, it results in a more uh, diverse um, uh, group of selected individuals. So there, th these are small things that have a big difference. Uh, do, do I gather, by the way, before we go into the next question, that there is bipartisan support for this? In fact, there is, uh, David, and, and that's why if you look at the, and only if you've got nothing better to do and you're trying to um, find a way to go to sleep, um, watch the uh, NDAA markup at the House Armed Services Committee last week. Very little outside of the Confederate um, uh, naming of installations, there was almost no discussion about these diversity issues, and that's a good thing because we achieved bipartisan agreement and they were passed essentially by unanimous consent. You know, we have the kind of audience that probably did spend last week doing that. Oh, I apologize, Dan. I hope you, hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, they're, no, they're, it's a terribly nerdy group of people, and they're really glad that you're here to talk to them because people don't talk to them very much. Rosa, what, what, do, what do you have to uh, ask Congressman? Uh, so I have a question about um, the AUMF and the work that you've been doing to try to rein in uh, what turned out to be uh, essentially open-ended uh, power to the, the executive branch to use force around the globe against more or less anyone as long as we're willing to pretend that there's somehow a link to 9-11 uh, in there somewhere. So, so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the legislation that you're co-sponsoring, number one, uh, and explain to our listeners how it is similar to or different to other legislative efforts in the past. And, and more specifically, I'm curious, do you think it is likely to make it? Do you think this is different than other failed efforts to rein in uh, uh, executive branch use of force under the 2001 AUMF? And, and if so, you know, what's different here? And I'm asking like a 16-part question, I realize, which is now going to be impossible for you to answer because no one will be able to remember the 16 parts of it. But if you are taking notes or something, or, or, or I'll, I'll remind you if, if you're not. I'm also is our next presidential administration. What would you want to see President Biden do to their branches exercised in an accountable and transparent way? Sure. And I think I have the call of your question, really. Uh, and uh, we're talking about the uh, 2001 AUMF, uh, that regardless of your views back in 2001, uh, um, where, you know, the vast majority of the members of Congress um, supported it, gave uh, President Bush the authority to use military force uh, to go into Afghanistan after Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden. Um, I think most people today would say that uh, there's been tremendous creep, abuse, overuse of this AUMF, and if you were to take inventory and ask the DOD to specifically identify which countries you, the United States has forces that are engaged or very likely to be engaged in hostilities, that list is much larger or longer than any would have, anybody would have contemplated, most people, back in 2001. So 
Um, what, what we're trying to do, um, and, uh, and I'm working with a bipartisan um, um, a group of, of legislators. We have the support of the ranking member of the, of the Foreign Affairs Committee and the, and the, and the Rules Committee. Um, what we're trying to do is to contain the AUMF where it is today. Wherever the 2001 AUMF uh, is being used as the authority or the basis for the presence of U.S. forces that are engaged in hostilities, let's just contain it right there. Um, other efforts have been to repeal the AUMF, um, has been to repeal the AUMF. Uh, one such uh, proposal, which did get a vote out of the House Appropriations Committee uh, two years ago, I think it was the subject of an amendment on the House floor, uh, maybe as recently as last year, um, had a little bit of bipartisan support. But what that provision would have done, it would have repealed the AUMF in six months. The thinking being that you'll give Congress six months to debate the use of military force and authorize it where we think appropriate. I actually have concerns with that because I don't think Congress can do a lot of meaningful, important, weighty things in six months. And I'm fearful for our men and women who are in harm's way, who if some a provision like that were to pass, six months would elapse and they'd be out there in a number of places around the globe without that AUMF that gives them uh, sort of like that cover, knowing that, hey, we're out here with the full authorization of the United States Congress. So our effort is to contain where it is, and then coming to the second part of your question, what do we expect in a, under a Biden administration? Um, well, what I, would, what I would hope for in a Biden administration is something uh, where he would say to Congress, much like um, President Obama did for Syria, he would put to Congress a challenge, debate the authorization for the use of military force, okay, and let's together make decisions about where, where we ought to authorize that force. Some might say I'm being a little naive because once a president becomes, a, once a person becomes a president, they will do what every other president did. They will guard that constitutional right as commander of chief to deploy forces anywhere uh, and at any time. I'm hopeful that a Biden president would engage Congress in a meaningful debate around the 2001 AUMF and make decisions about where we should be deploying uh, forces. Thank you, Ed. Uh, Congressman, let me just take in a slightly different direction. Um, although you were mentioning uh, a Biden administration, so it, it, it concerns that. Um, if Biden were elected, bearing in mind um, what happened early in the Obama administration, where President Obama made the decision on pragmatic grounds not to look um, into um, the use of enhanced interrogation techniques, breaches of the Geneva Convention, and so forth that had happened under the previous administration, but to draw a line under that for doubtless sound political reasons, um, perhaps slightly less sound jurisprudential thinking, but understandable in the context. My question to you is, if Biden was elected president, um, we've had four years of a president who's been breaking all kinds of laws, obstructing all kinds of inquiries, um, derailing all kinds of prosecutors, and an attorney general who's been enabling him, who has... Uh, warped the norms, the legal norms of this country. Um, 
Do you think, A, Biden would take a similar kind of decision? Let's just draw the line under this and move on. We've got a pandemic to deal with. We've got a UMF to debate. We've got all kinds of things to deal with. Um, or, or do you think he would take the view that, no, this, this constitution is going to be weakened unless there are consequences for what's been happening in the last four years? We, we should have strongly backed investigations by the DOJ, etc. And what would you recommend? Yeah, I, I think that um, fundamentally, um, Vice President Biden, if and when he's elected president, and right now the polling shows that he is on a, a really solid path to winning in November, um, a lot of work yet to be done. Um, he is very much committed into reestablishing the integrity of our democracy, uh, the, the uh, promoting U.S. values both at home and abroad. Uh, and for him, that means a number of things. Uh, it means uh, reaffirming our commitments to obligations, whether it's NATO, whether it's, it's obligations and commitments and promises we made uh, in the Paris Climate Accord, but rejoining that. Um, a commitment to uh, the Iran nuclear deal, and maybe not in the exact form uh, that it was in when President Trump broke that commitment, uh, but certainly re-engaging on that. So I think I think internationally, he wants to restore faith and confidence in America, America's credibility and our values. And I do think that includes things like very clear statements on banning uh, the use of, of torture and these enhanced uh, uh, interrogation techniques. And he's been, been very clear of that um, 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 on the campaign trail. Um, and I think um, domestically also restoring confidence in government investigations where they need to be done, allowing Congress to conduct the investigations that it needs to, as a co-equal branch of government, uh, uh, conduct uh, in its oversight role. If there are allegations of misconduct and wrongdoing, um, whether it's at the Department of Justice, Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, State Department, um, that, you know, not, not, not in necessarily inviting them or welcoming them, but understanding that that is a part of our checks and balances uh, um, that, that this country was founded on um, and being in a responsible way, a partner with Congress in enabling us to uh, fulfill our constitutional responsibilities. He recognizes that the, um, the, the credibility of our country, both at home and abroad, uh, has been uh, damaged uh, under this administration, and I think is going to take um, um, uh, great steps uh, in addressing that while, as you say, simultaneously wrestling this pandemic. It reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, when, when Obama was elected, uh, he, he inherited a financial mess uh, that he had to help navigate through and out of. And, and Vice President um, Obama, I'm sorry, Vice President Biden, soon to be President Obama, is inheriting this pandemic. Uh, and, and, and one that's been mismanaged, uh, and also this new um, attention and focus on, on race and police accountability uh, that he's going to have to address and can't just um, um, hope that it goes away. And I don't think, he, and he doesn't hope that it goes away. He knows he's got to lead and manage on that issue as well. So just, just let me follow up on Ed's question there. Do you think that the next administration should take special steps to hold the Trump administration accountable for those instances where they have broken the law. Yeah, you know, yeah, the answer is yes. And um, where, where, as we complete 
investigations that have been uh, stymied by the president's uh, refusal to turn over tax records, uh, his refusal, his refusal, and the and the administration's refusal to comply with any requests uh, and subpoenas from Congress for information either pertaining to the Trump organization, the Trump administration, or the executive branch more broadly, as we uncover wrongdoing, certainly that which could lead to criminal um, um, liability or prosecution, I do think uh, that you have to hold um, uh, President Trump um, um, and others uh, responsible for that misconduct. Um, I would hope, though, that we don't spend a whole lot of time uh, in pursuit of that above and beyond the normal course of business, because this country has to get uh, to the business at hand, whether it's uh, um, health care, improving health care. It's, it's certainly recovering a, a damaged uh, economy, addressing the inequities and the inequalities that exist. So sure, we're going to have to chew gum and walk at the same time. Uh, but I don't want to see a stumble over uh, a, a, an inordinate amount of attention on an outgoing um, president. Okay. So let me move to a question that I want to pose to everybody, a sort of a general topic I want to pose to everybody. And I'll start with you, Congressman, but then I'd like to go around and get everybody's, sure. everybody's take on it. Maybe they have additional questions. Um, but it, it has to do with the fact that once again, we find ourselves in a position where there's a very big story that gets overtaken by other shocking events, right? So the President of the United States, we learned over two weeks ago, was informed um, perhaps as, as, as long as 18 months ago, but, but certainly six months ago, that the Russians had I put a bounty on the heads of American and Allied forces. And the president not only did nothing about this, um, but he um, subsequently has rewarded the Russians in a number of ways, sought to reward the Russians in other ways, uh, and denied that this was a fact. In fact, there was a kind of a cover-up within the administration that this was true at all. Late last week, we also learned um, that uh, as far back as you know, a year prior to that, we knew that um, the Russians were supplying arms to the Taliban. Um, and, you know, this is a president who's made a big um, part of his identity, if you will, that he supports the military, that he's funding the military. And here is a situation where he knew of a risk to the military, and not only did he not mitigate the risk, he actually rewarded sought to reward the people who were responsible for that risk. And I, and I would add, by the way, that, you know, as sort of the, the latest in, in that, for a long time, the United States did not allow its manufacturers of gun silencers to sell their silencers overseas. And it has now just been approved by this administration as a result of lobbying that that would be the case. That, that, and why did we not approve it? Because we thought it posed a risk to American Soldiers. So the risk to U.S. forces overseas under Donald Trump has risen. What, if anything, are we going to do about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll start. I'll be brief. You know, so he's a commander in chief. If he was a uniformed uh, officer and 
and fortunately we've got the separation of our military leadership and our civilian leadership, he certainly would be court-martialed. Dereliction of d- d- duty, malfeasance in office, some may even say treason. Um, uh, as president, um, um, uh, and he's pursued bad policies, uh, he's put um, U.S. service members in harm's way, we may find in, in, in investigations that he actually did cover up and conceal uh, that may rise to the level of criminal conduct. Uh, and this goes back to, I think, the question that um, Ed was asking, and you did the follow-up, you know, what is going to be our responsibility under the Biden administration to discover, you know, to the extent that there was, you know, cr- criminal conduct, not just misconduct. So where it is, we should pursue it. Um, but, um, um, you know, here is a president who, like you said, he, he touts the military. He likes to have an audience where the military stands behind him. But he's really done nothing more than treat the military like toy soldiers, literally wanting to put them on parade in Washington, D.C., uses them to forward his failed comprehensive or, or his immigration policy. So he sends them to the southwest border. Um, and, um, you know, look, November couldn't come soon enough. Um, and, and that's going to be the, the, the real report card on this president's neglect uh, and misuse of the military uh, come November's election. Okay, let's, we've got, you know, maybe 10, 10, 15 minutes left here. Let me go to you, Corey, and you can respond to it or you can ask another question. It's up to you. So I'm not surprised that the Russians are arming the Taliban. They're repaying us for us arming the Taliban against Russian control of Afghanistan in the 1980s. I'm not even surprised that the Russians are issuing bounties, but I am shocked that on even if you didn't have an intelligence community consensus on it, I'm genuinely shocked that the Secretary of Defense and the President of the United States aren't making this the first and foremost thing they are engaging the Russians about and threatening retaliation unless the Russians knock it off. Um, so it goes to the congressman's concern about their general defense policies um, and their general um, lax attitude towards Russian interference in our elections, towards Russian interference um, in the Baltic states, towards the Russian invasion of Crimea, um, that we have terrible Russia policy and the administration saying, but if you ignore the president, our policy is brilliant and tough-minded, actually isn't good enough because if you had, as in the instance of the bounties, to rely on the president to execute the policy ostensibly enforced by his administration, he would fail to do so. And that goes to the credibility of all the other elements of policy. So you've just described what we could call the Wizard of Oz defense policy, where it's <laughs> don't, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain, right? You know, if you just, well played, David. Well played. You know, I find it um, oh, interesting um, that um, you know during the defense authorization markup, um, we we debated, and there was there was broad bipartisan support. Uh, to um, put conditions uh, on the president uh, from withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. Now, when you think about it, 
Uh, we did it two years ago when it came to South Korea. Uh, we did it again, or at least we're in the process of doing it uh, to prevent uh, or slow down uh, withdrawing uh, or reducing troop size in Germany. In both of those cases, that's more of troop stationing uh, decisions. But here for the first time that I can think of, I'm not quite the historian, Congress is ready to say to a wartime president, before you withdraw troops from Afghanistan, you've got to meet some pretty high hurdles. That's kind of unheard of, but that speaks to just the lack of confidence that both Republicans and Democrats have in this president's ability to act responsibly as commander in chief. I wonder if we can go back to the question of uh, the rising awareness of racial injustice in, in the U.S. and um, ask you whether you think this is a, ask you two things. One, one whether you think that the sort of tide, the winds of change are likely to blow us somewhere real this time, or will this fade? There will be some new crisis. Everyone will forget about it. Uh, you know, do we think that we're going to see real change? And, and two, since we are at least nominally a foreign policy podcast, I'm curious about your perception of how much the rest of the world is watching what the U.S. does right now on issues of racial injustice. Uh, in, in, you must have conversations with, with foreign counterparts, et cetera. Uh, and I'm, you know, certainly in the past, I think U.S. failures on civil rights and racial justice issues were huge propaganda boosts for the Soviet Union during the Cold War, for instance. Is this another moment where we need to be viewing our domestic policies on racial justice as bound up with our global power and reputation, or do you see these as unrelated issues? Completely related. There's no doubt about it. Uh, in the last over 100 years, um, the United States uh, has been viewed closely uh, by countries around the world, particularly Europe. Um, what we did in terms of racial division and institutionalized racism under Jim Crow was replicated uh, by Hitler and the Nuremberg Laws. It, it helped him justify um, uh, his uh, um, regime that he set up. Uh, to subjugate, prosecute, and kill Jews uh, in Germany and Europe. So what we do along racial lines, the, the values, the morals that we, that we promote, we project, or we undermine, like in the case of President Trump, is certainly viewed uh, around the world. And there's no question about that. I was on a, a conference, a Zoom conference uh, recently uh, with the German Marshall Fund and our uh, colleagues um, uh, from Germany, uh, parliamentarians, uh, and they knew as much, if not more, about the, the history of racial injustices in our country as probably most Americans do. Um, I do think that this is a, a time where we should be optimistic, um, that I think the nation is watching even more closely uh, than when in the 19, early 1960s, uh, much of white America that was unfamiliar with the racial injustices in the Deep South uh, be tuned in when they saw it on nightly news. Uh, well, this is not just nightly news on three different channels. This is across so many mediums. And it's at a time where in a, we're in a pandemic where surveys have shown that Americans are consuming more news today 
than they have been in the last, you know, several years because we have, you know, not a whole lot more to do. Um, so with the confluence of those two things, uh, there is a much heightened awareness. Uh, you saw the, the peaceful protests around the country. You saw them around the world. This is a real time for action. Um, I'm hopeful that it doesn't, it's not just the Justice and Policing Act that we passed two weeks ago and nothing more. Um, I am fearful uh, that if President Trump were reelected, uh, that a year from now, we probably won't be much better off um, other than what happens in state capitals, we won't be much better off at the federal level than we are today. Thanks, Ed. Uh, since this is a, um, as Rosa said, nominally a foreign a foreign policy um, podcast, let let me ask you about China and China policy. I mean, it's been very striking um, how quickly um, since Trump um, has been president, but but more recently in the last couple of years, a consensus of sorts has developed that we're across the parties, that we are in a new Cold War with China. And of course, China has um, been doing its best to justify that with its actions in Hong Kong and uh, um, its extraordinary human rights violations in Xinjiang um, and its aggression around the region. Um, But then we have Trump, of course, blowing hot and cold, admiring Xi Jinping, envying the autocrat, autocrats, president for life um, uh, status, um, and then starting trade wars, stopping trade wars, fighting 20th century trade wars when he is, not 21st century ones. Um, and the Democratic Party gradually sort of um, uh, dropping its generational um, faith in the arc of history and, and in the view that trade and globalization will lead to political relaxation in China. So we're at a sort of very interesting crossroads um, and a very, very dangerous one, potentially, in terms of the new Cold War. Biden campaign doesn't yet have a formal China policy, so I'm not going to ask you what that should be. But sure. what, what, um, where is the center of gravity in the Democratic Party on how we should cope with China? Because there isn't really anything more important in terms of America's foreign policy. Where, where, where is it and where should it be in your view? Right. Yeah, and I think, I think where it is and where it's actually sh- sliding, shifting, moving. Um, and and, I'll, and I'll, say, I'll preface it by saying, unfortunately, although probably out of necessity, uh, is kind of back towards one of, of trying to contain China, although that's really impossible to do uh, because it's growing economically, it's growing militarily, diplomatically. Um, 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 exerting itself in places around the world where you didn't see much of China years ago, Africa, I think recently um, signing agreements with Iran. Um, And so uh, maybe in a knee-jerk response, I don't know, uh, Democrats are beginning to join Republicans to do everything we can to sort of, um, uh, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, really contain uh, China. Uh, repel it from this country, right? Um, Try to get China uh, and Chinese nationals off of our college campuses. Um, Keep Chinese technology, particularly, you know, Huawei, um, um, out of uh, the United States, out of Europe. Um, And, but other than this sort of like uh, effort to either try to contain or repel, we don't seem to have a proactive policy on how do you how do you engage China? Because you, we, we, we have to engage China. They are a force that's growing and they're not going to go away. 
and, and how do we try to find common ground? There's a lot that um, where we differ. We differ on human rights uh, a record. Uh, we, we differ on um, whether or not we're willing to sanction bad conduct around the world. Even where we agree on the Iran nuclear deal, China seems to be willing uh, to, you know, um, um, uh, purchase oil from Iran, undermining that agreement. Um, so we've got to figure out um, how do you engage China? How do you, how do you bring them uh, into the international rules-based uh, order, which I know we tried, we have not been successful, but we need to continue to try to do things like that. Okay, we, thank you for that. We've we've just got a minute or 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 two left here, um, and we've covered a, a lot of ground, and I'm grateful to all of you for that. Let me ask one last quick question of the congressman, um, because I know people's schedules are, are are tight here, but. Even though we are nominally foreign policy and national security oriented podcast, we do cover the news. One of the reasons that this Afghanistan bounty story has faded into the background is that the president um, on Friday night, as he tends to do these things, commuted the sentence of Roger Stone. Um, you're on the ethics committee, although the ethics committee doesn't necessarily deal with these things. You're an attorney. Um, and, uh, you know, by the way, congratulations. I, I noticed that you're in the same law school class as Barack Obama. And he's out of politics now. You're still in politics. So I guess, I guess you <laughs> want that. smarter than me, both at law school <laughs> and now. Um, but, but, but I just I wanted to, to quickly, as a, as a last word here, get your reaction to the president's move regarding Roger Stone. Yeah, what a what a uh, a shameless, gross abuse of the presidential uh, power to pardon, um, and you know, so many uh, both Democrats and Republicans have condemned uh, that uh, that decision. Um, you know, it's one of the unfortunate provisions in the Constitution where, like, we're stuck with it. Article two, section two, like un unbridled, unfettered uh, uh, power and discretion in the president to pardon, to commute, uh, etc. And while Congress, we can talk about limiting that power, um, there's very little, unfortunately, that we can do. Uh, I don't know if America has an appetite to amend the Constitution, but that's what it would take. Um, the founders didn't contemplate uh, such an abuse of this power. Um, and this is exactly what the president has done uh, at Roger Stone, uh, Michael Flynn, um, the uh, sheriff out in Arizona before, before the verdict even came in or certainly before the sentence came in. Glaboyevich uh, uh, from uh, from Illinois. I mean, people who are just clear and convincingly uh, are, are criminals. He is commuted, uh, and it's a shame. And unfortunately, um, you know, and you know, as an elected official, you know, you never want to admit this. There's nothing we can do about this one, um, other than uh, elect presidents uh, who have a lot more respect for that for that power. Well, thank you for that. Uh, certainly, it's, it's, it's one of many subjects we've touched upon here that we could go on at length. Hopefully, we'll have the opportunity to do so again, Congressman. You're a great guest, and hopefully, you will return. Uh, and, uh, of course, same to you guys, to, to, to Ed and to Rosa and to Corey. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to everybody out there for listening. We'll have more uh, this week, as we always do. And for those of you who are looking for the latest a uh, 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 podcast that we've got done uh, or uh, written content, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And of course, you can sign up, uh, become a member, help support what we're doing. Um, uh, but 
above all, uh, everybody, um, uh, uh, please uh, make every effort to uh, be safe and healthy out there. Uh, And thanks again to all of you.